Well, if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 is where we're going to begin this morning. We're going to continue this series that we've been in the last few weeks, this What We Believe, the Doctrines of the Church. And this morning, in these next minutes, we're going to study the doctrine of humanity. We, as an elder team, wrote a summation statement. Uh, The doctrine of humanity says this, We believe all human beings, born and unborn, have been created by God in his own image and are of great value and worth beyond our ability to measure. All human beings, born and unborn, have been created by God in his own image. Genesis chapter 1 Verse 26 and 27 says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Because we are created by God in his image, each and every human being is of great worth and value. I think it's important to say, like right at the beginning, it's important to say this image of God is what makes us a great value and worth. It's not something that we do. It's something that we are. This image of God is not a trait, it's not a characteristic, it's not an attribute. Our identity is definitive because we are made in the image of God. Psalm 139, verse 13 through 18, some of you know this passage of scripture, for you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. And when I awake... I am still with you. In practical terms, to see a human person, whether a baby in the womb through a monitor or a teenager with Down syndrome or an elderly person lying in a nursing home bed, unable to care for themselves, is to see an image bearer. It's to catch a real glimpse of the glory of the one who made us. Uh, take a quick look at the person sitting next to you. Take a quick look at the person sitting next to you, maybe on either side. That girl or that guy, uh, that girl or that guy that's sitting next to you is an image bearer of God. That person, maybe you just look one more time. Maybe you don't want to look at the person sitting next to you. Maybe you're upset with each other or whatever. Like, ah. That person sitting next to you is an image bearer of God. The person sitting in front of you and the person sitting behind you is an image bearer of God. It's a person that God knit together in your mama's tummy, right? 
It's a person of great value and worth. Tell the person sitting next to you, you are of great value and worth. Go ahead. You are of great value and worth. Carolyn, you're great value and worth. Great value, great value and worth. In the church where I grew up, we had a similar doctrinal statement to the one that we've written here. And that doctrinal statement came with an action point, uh, sort of a starting point to live into this doctrine. Our church that I grew up in said, all people matter to God, therefore all people matter to us. All people matter to God, therefore all people matter to us. In the announcement of the arrival of the Messiah, an angel appears with a host of other angels and speaks to a bunch of outcast shepherds in a lonely field. He says, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. For today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is Messiah the Lord. All people. This good news is for all people. Jesus would later say in John 3, 16 and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes, anyone, all people, this message is for everyone. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. All people matter to God, and therefore all people matter to us. I'd bet if we did like a little poll, like how this sermon is going so far. Like if I said, hey, how's this sermon going so far? You guys believe in everything that I'm saying? I bet all of you would probably say, yeah, man, all people matter to God. All people matter to me, yep. I bet all of us would probably raise our hands. You don't have to do it, but all of us. But, but do you live that way? Or do some people matter more to you than others? Do some people groups matter more to you than others? It's one thing to say that we believe this doctrine and it is true. It's something else to put it into practice. Jesus came into the world because all people matter to God Each person on this planet is of great value and worth beyond our ability to measure. Last week, I told you this seven-day recreation story. If you were here last week, we dove into Luke's gospel, and I showed you some examples of this uh, recreation story. I want us to stay in Luke's gospel, and I want to share some examples of people who matter to Jesus and therefore matter to us. So we're just going to kind of go through the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke. We'll start with Luke chapter 5, verse 12 and 13. Luke 5, 12 and 13. Um, This story is about a man who was an outcast. Uh, He's considered a threat to society. Uh, He has this lethal disease called leprosy, and this guy comes to Jesus. He says, Lord, if you're willing you can make me clean. And then verse 13, Jesus reached out his hand and he touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Jesus touched this man. No one touches lepers 
You got to understand this. Like lepers were sort of these outcast people. They had to announce when they came into town, leper, leper. So everyone would get out of the way because leprosy was passed through touch. And yet Jesus sees this man. He matters to him and he touches him. I can only imagine how long it's been since this leper has been touched. Like how long it's been since this leper had the chance to hold his son, to hug his wife, to kiss her on the lips or to scoop up his granddaughter and hold her. I can only imagine how long it had been since this man had been touched. But because of the touch of Jesus, this man is clean. It is a man with leprosy that matters to Jesus. Next few verses in Luke chapter 5 tell the story of a man who is paralyzed. Uh, and this story is how his friends bring this paralyzed man to Jesus. This guy doesn't have much going for him. He can't use the bathroom on his own. He needs someone to help turn him over so that he doesn't get bed sores. But the one thing this guy has going for him is he's got some really crazy friends. This is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Check this out. Uh, this is Luke 5 verse 18. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and they tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they couldn't find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and they lowered his, him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Love this story. Just real quick, I hope and I pray that you have four friends that would do whatever it takes to get you to the feet of Jesus. There are times in all of our lives, I think, where we find ourselves sort of stuck, maybe even paralyzed. We maybe can't find a way to get to Jesus. And our friends come along and they pick us up, sometimes literally pick us up on our mat and carry us to the foot of Jesus. This is really crazy. I don't know if you caught this, but Jesus says, friend, your sins are forgiven. Real quick, what kind of sins can a paralyzed man commit? Like for real, what kind of sins does a paralyzed man commit? Because this is the first thing Jesus said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Kind of, I mean, what does he, what does, what does he do? His thoughts. What else? Lies. What else? Attitude. Blame. Keep going. Somebody over here? Now I'm just going to start calling people. Joseph, what did you say? His what? Slander. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shame. Hate. Envy. Jealousy. I'm just going to sit down. You guys just keep going. We got this. This is working out great. I wrote down a couple things that you said. I wrote down jealousy, bitterness, anger, resentment. I wrote down that maybe the paralyzed man believed that his friends matter more to Jesus than he does because he's sick and they're not. And his friends are strong and capable and creative and they're doing great things for God. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, he's committing the sin of comparison. It's the paralyzed man 
and his four friends that matter to Jesus. A couple of verses down in chapter 5, Jesus calls this tax collector to follow him, not just to follow him, but to become one of his disciples. And the people around this scene, this story, don't like it. This guy's name is Levi, and they see Levi as a sinner. And Jesus says, verse 31, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It's this sinner that matters to Jesus. If you have your Bibles, let's just keep going. Uh, Luke chapter 6, verse 20, 21 and 22. In one of Jesus's sermons, he looks at his disciples and he says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. All people matter to God. All people matter to God. But Jesus makes sure that the whole world knows that the poor and the hungry and the weeping and the people who are hated and insulted and excluded and rejected all matter to God. If you're following along, Luke chapter 8, verse 41, a couple more examples. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl, about 12, was dying. As Jesus went, was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately the bleeding stopped. First story talks about a dad who is desperate for the healing of his daughter. We don't have to do any hands up in the air thing here, but are there any dads who are desperate for the healing of their daughter? Those kinds of dads... And those kinds of daughters matter to Jesus. And then this woman, this woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, she matters to God. She touches the edge of his cloak and immediately her bleeding stopped. Here's the next verse. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet in the presence of all the people in the presence of all the people, Jesus said, someone touched me. I know the power that has gone out for me. And then the woman, seeing she couldn't go unnoticed, came trembling. Oh, I already read all this part. I missed, I got this backwards. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she'd been instantly healed. And then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. A woman who has been bleeding for 12 years matters to God. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells three stories. He tells the story of a person who loses a sheep. He tells the story of a person who loses a coin. And he tells the story of a father who loses a son. People who have experienced loss matter to God. A couple more examples. Luke chapter 18 and Luke 21. Luke chapter 18, verse 15 through 17, we find Jesus blessing babies 
and calling children to himself. Luke 18, verse 15, people were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them, but Jesus called the children to him and he said, let the children come to me and don't hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And then Luke chapter 21, verses one through four, as Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she gave out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Babies matter to Jesus. Children matter to Jesus. I think it's 178 students uh, and leaders, something like that, that are at Fuel this weekend up at camp. Every single one of those matter to God. And widows matter to Jesus. Jesus points out widows as our examples. If the sinners and the sick and the paralyzed and the poor and the hungry and the weeping and the people who are hated and insulted and rejected and those who have experienced loss matter to God, then they matter to us. And you matter to us. And you matter to God. If you're poor or you're sick or you've been persecuted, you matter to God. If you're a parent whose child is sick, you matter to God. If you've experienced loss, maybe the loss of money or the loss of a dream or the loss of a son, you matter to God. And if you've lost your husband or your wife, you matter to God. Let me give you one more example. We'll spend the next few minutes here in this story. And then I want to tell you a little bit of my story. As we read this story, I want you to consider two things. In this story, who matters to Jesus? And to whom does Jesus matter? So if you have your Bibles, flip back to Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Uh, we were going that way, now we're going back. Luke 7, verse 36. And I'm going to read all the way down through verse 50. Luke 7, 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. A woman in that town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. And so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair and she kissed them and poured perfume on them. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he'd know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is that she's a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender 
One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And then he turned toward the woman. He said, Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Real quick, who matters to Jesus in this story? Who matters to Jesus? You could shout it out if you know the answer. Yeah. Who said everyone? Kathy? Everyone. Everyone in this story matters to Jesus. Everyone in this room matters to Jesus. And to whom does Jesus matter in this story? Everyone. Everybody in this story, Jesus. Simon matters to Jesus and Jesus matters to Simon. Simon's the host of his party. He invites his friends to come along. Simon is a Pharisee. He keeps to the letter of the law. He's guided by truth. Truth is his highest value. But in all of his truth, he fails to honor Jesus. No water for his feet. No kiss. No oil. No intimacy. No love. And even though Simon gets it wrong... Jesus takes the time to speak with him about it. He doesn't just blow him off. He tells a story that would speak to his heart and break it. See, in Simon's world, some people matter to Jesus more than others. Surely, he says, surely a prophet would know what kind of woman this is. Simon doesn't really see this woman. He knows she's there, but doesn't see her because she doesn't matter to him because she's a sinner. And Jesus says, see this woman, see her, look at her. She matters to me. And then Jesus tells this little story and he ends it this way. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. I find this little bit of the story fascinating. What is going on here? Why does Simon need to hear this? What's happening here? Simon the Pharisee is in deep need of forgiveness and he doesn't know it. He's completely committed to his conviction, but he has no compassion. Simon is entrenched in his religion, his keeping of the law, but he hasn't learned how to live and love like Jesus keeping the first commandment. The reality is Simon is not going to commit any big sin. 
I mean, he's not going to commit any big sin. He's too committed to his reputation to do something public. He's not going to kill anyone. He's not going to have an affair. He's too calculated for that. But his arrogance and his pride, his judgment and his condemnation, he's a bit like the paralyzed man. The church is most scandalized by sins of the flesh. Jesus is most scandalized by the sins of the Spirit. And Jesus says, you don't love because you don't think you sin. The reality is, it's much more insidious than that. In an effort to be religious, he's totally missed, totally missed the call to love. And this woman matters to Jesus. That's for, that's for sure. Jesus receives her worship. He receives her tears. And above all things, Jesus forgives her sin. And Jesus really matters to this woman, right? Jesus really matters to this woman. She ascribes worth and worship to him through the washing of his feet with her tears in an act of great value and worth beyond our ability to measure. This woman gives him the highest honor at sitting at his feet, pouring perfume and kissing his feet. Hey, quick question. Where are you in this story? How are you guys doing? You tracking? Where are you? Where do you find yourself in this story? Maybe, maybe like one of those people who were invited to the party. We didn't really hear much about those guys. They're invited to the party. They know what's going on, but they're not going to participate. They're not really in this story. They're just kind of onlookers, bystanders. They're just watching. Maybe, maybe that's some of you. Not really into it, just kind of watching, checking it out. Or maybe, or maybe, maybe like Simon staunchly committed to your religion. Or, or maybe like this woman who is single-minded in her devotion, she says, I just want to be with Jesus at all costs, at all costs. When I read this story, and I've been reading this story for a little bit, I find myself in this story. And I find myself that he's inviting me into a story, and you too, maybe, that might be a little bit different than we know. Let me tell you a little bit of my story. After a very challenging year, I came into the summer with great excitement and enthusiasm. My daughter and I were going to graduate from college. I was so excited. And I was going to do a wedding for one of my best friend's son. That whole story was just totally bananas. And I was going to get to take my granddaughter to the beach for a couple of days before everybody else got there. That was just amazing. And my daughters and I are hatching this plan to do this little project together. And I was super, super excited. But the summer did not turn out the way I thought it would. In fact, this summer has been the most difficult summer of my life. It has been excruciatingly painful. It has been hellacious. And yet, I've never felt more honored or more humbled by my wife and my kids and my closest friends as I have this summer. 
the intimacy that our family has shared has been a little bit of heaven on earth. It's been pretty amazing. In the middle of the summer, it became very clear to me and to my family that I was at a crossroads, that we were at a crossroads. And so I asked our elders for a season of discernment, a season in which I could discern and examine my calling and my leadership at Sanctuary. We agreed that this season would conclude at the end of the summer on August 31st. I invited some friends into the season with me. I invited our elders, and one of my friends said, Craig, I'm going to pray for the deepest nearness of God that you've ever known. Wow. Think about that for a second. The deepest nearness of God that you've ever known. What would that look like? What would that sound like? We were talking about it. We've been talking about it. And I said to Christy, I think I've kind of already experienced the deepest nearness of God. Like uh, this, this thing with our family and the stuff that we've got to do together and be together. Our girls loving us the way that they do. My son-in-law, who's totally amazing. Friends coming around us. New friends and old ones. People praying like crazy. And as August 31st approached, I decided to go to Southern California for a few days of prayer and fasting and surfing. And I did two of the three. No one fasts in Southern California. Are you kidding me? There's In-N-Out burgers like all over the place. There was no way that the fasting part was going to work while I was there. It, it, it's just the In-N-Out burger is too good to pass up. So I didn't fast. And while I was there, I experienced the deepest nearness of God that I have ever known. I'm in this little house overlooking the ocean. And I wept for two days. Tears of grief and tears of lament and tears of confession and tears of celebration. And what was unearthed in me actually caught me by surprise. It was my false religion it was that stuff that includes shame and condemnation. I didn't realize how deep it was. And it just kept coming out. I was made deeply aware of my own self-righteousness and self-sufficiency and my need to control. I was Simon. I was the host inviting everyone to the party. And God began to excavate that stuff that has been part of me for a really long time. And he started to renovate those places and is still doing both of those things, excavating and renovating and bringing a little bit of healing and wholeness. And in the tenderness of Jesus, I was invited to let go, let go. Let go and live into this deepest nearness of God. I tell you all of that because it's bigger than what's happening with me here. It's not an invitation to a place or a program or a people. It's an invitation to a person. 
I, like you, have been invited to come not to a religion, but to a person, to Jesus himself. I quickly realized that this invitation would mean resignation. It is an invitation for me, and it's an invitation for you, and it's an invitation for this church. This invitation is for me to let go and to come to Jesus at all costs. So when I came home from Southern California and met with the elders, I resigned my last Sunday as my last Sunday as your pastor will be next Sunday. For this woman, for this woman, Jesus mattered at all costs. She comes to him broken and desperate and completely vulnerable, totally trusting him with herself, with her past, with her failures, with her fragility, trusting him with her whole story. She walks in almost unseen, but she's known. Everyone knows her, but none, but none of what anyone else thinks about her matters to her because she's heard this invitation to come to Jesus just as she is right where she is and she weeps, she weeps. The deepest nearness of God that this woman has ever known. Leaving for me won't fix anything. It won't solve anything. My life won't get any easier. And just to be honest, I can't really explain it positively even to myself. So I doubt I can explain it to you. My deep, deep feeling is I can't not do this. I do know that if I fail in some way to respond to this sense of calling, to this sense of imperative, it's going to cost me something of my soul. So I'm choosing to live and love from a place of the deepest dearness of God that I have ever known. He matters to us that much. How much does he matter to you? This invitation to come to Jesus, it's not just for Christy and me. It's for all of us. It's for you. It's for me. It's for all of us. Will you come? Will you come? Let's pray together. Now, to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think. According to your power, God, that is at work within us. To you, Jesus, be glory in the church and in this church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.